1: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. It is time for a preview of the 2021 Roland Garros men's quarterfinals. The matchups are set. Going back to my predictions, I did all right. Casper uh, Rude was an upset semifinalist. I gave him the edge over Zverev, but he didn't make it so far. Instead, it's Alejandro davidovich Fokina. I also lost, lost Aslan Karatsev, who I thought would be challenging Nadal. Uh, instead of Diego Schwartzman, Great for Diego Schwartzman, who had uh, had lost to uh, Karatsev twice. Never had to play him. Uh, probably the most surprised I've been at a result all tournament long was uh, Karatsev's loss to... I'm literally forgetting. Hold on. Karatsev, his loss stunned me. It was to... Philip Kohlschreiber, that's right, the 37-year-old Philip Kohlschreiber. How shocking was that? So what we're going to do, we are going to go through all four of these quarterfinals. And then later in the show, I bring on Jeff Salzenstein. Uh, I love talking to Jeff, and there's some topics that we cover. It's not too heavy, like French Open, French Open, French Open, but we talk about Roger Federer, his withdrawal. Good to get different opinions on this because I know that there are so many different opinions out there, so I think it's important to get different perspectives, which Jeff offers. Um, I talk about Dominic Team with Jeff. I, I, that's a topic that I wanted to uh, bring up with him, and then uh, obviously some some French Open stuff as well. Again, really good conversation, that is, and that'll be the show. So let's get started. I'm going to go in order, and I'll timestamp these so that you guys can... Can skip around. I'm assuming some people will watch this after the first semifinal, excuse me, quarterfinal is already over. But let's start with Alexander Zverev against Alejandro Davidovich Fakina. The head to head is 2 0 in favor of Zverev. They played at the U.S. Open last year. It was a 6 2, 6 2, 6 1 victory for the German. Third set was ridiculous. I, ADF could not move. He was really, like, badly injured and just didn't want to retire. It would have been very understandable if he did because he literally couldn't move. So, uh, nonetheless, Zverev was rolling in that match. And then they also played again in Cologne, where Zverev won a, a very tight match, 7-5, 7-6. I would say the conditions that the U.S. open um, are more similar to what we're going to see on court Philippe Chatrier compared to Cologne, which is a speedy, Indoor hard court, and I felt that ADF kind of had trouble doing damage against Varev in that in that U.S. Open match. Uh, For Zverev, he hasn't had a bad loss at the French Open since losing to Verdasco in 2017. He did have an awful start to the tournament, dropping the first two sets to Oscar Ote. But he's looked really great in his last two matches as he's gotten better and better and has defeated uh, Laszlo Jara, and Kay Nishikori in straightforward fashion. Straight sets for both of them, and Nishikori was especially one-sided. Um... ADF did have a uh, fantastic clay court season, and I'm really glad to see him doing so well because this is someone who has been on my radar. He's a, a mega, mega talent and just has so many great weapons, really good technique, fantastic athlete, awesome power great combination of speed and movement and also someone who can pack a punch and finish points. Really great combo of that. He's just getting more patient and more consistent, reeling in his shot selection and making less unforced errors. And that's why we're seeing seeing him get better results. He picked up his first top 10 win over Matteo Berrettini in Monte Carlo. His signature win on this French Open run was a 5-set victory over Casper Rude, a match that he lost 15, uh, he actually lost 15 more points than he won, but really came through in all the pressure moments to win and beat someone who was uh, one of the favorites coming into this event. Uh, he went five sets with Bostic van de Zanskulp, um, in the match prior, and his last match was four pretty tight sets against Frederico Delbonis. So I think that uh, fatigue could be a factor in this match. And Alejandro Davidovich Fokina has had durability in uh, problems in his career. Uh, he has been injured. He has had to withdraw from tournaments in the past. Had to uh, most recently in Monte Carlo, couldn't finish that tournament. So that is one thing that's a little bit concerning and and loom, looms large for ADF. Is what is the state of his body? How's his durability? How's his energy le- levels? Zverev tactically or technically is the far better server. That is ADF's main weakness, in my opinion. I talk about it a little bit with Jeff Salzenstein. And this match will be played before the sun goes down. So they, you know, the conditions will be fairly quick, and Zverev should be able to get through the court with his first serve. In baseline rallies, ADF is more much more likely to be the aggressor. He'll use his pacey forehand. He'll use frequent drop shots. And I don't know that Zverev minds that. He's arguably more comfortable counter-punching and more comfortable than initiating on this surface. He's more comfortable playing defense and using his, uh, his defense in his trading. His forehand even likes pace. So I think players who might hit a little bit slower and more loopy to Zverev's forehand might have more success. ADF really likes to get into his forehand and hit it very hard. I don't think Zverev really minds that. With that being said, the German needs to be mindful of his court position because ADF has a great drop shot. Zverev is fast and capable of covering them, but he he does need to be mindful of that. Zverev's defense and consistency, though, at the end of the day, is just unlike anything that ADF uh, will have seen all tournament long. So I do wonder if Fakina's attempts to create offense are going to turn into kind of a high-risk, uh, low-reward proposition, and that Zverev is going to be able to extract errors out of Davidovich. I think the Spaniard ultimately gets worn down after a tight first set. So my prediction is Sasha Zverev in three sets. I, you know, It, it also does come down to an energy thing. Um, I just think ADF is going to have to exert a ton, a ton of it. I don't know how much is left in the tank. When he's tired, he get, he can uh get a little bit overzealous, make errors, and ultimately, it's a pretty massive disparity that he's trying to overcome in terms of uh, the serving edge that Zverev has. So... I think ultimately this is going to turn out to just be a really good quarterfinal draw for Alexander Zverev, and um, I think he gets through this one. All right, um, support for Monday Match Analysis is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. It's Manscaped. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. That's right, the 4.0. I have it right here. Wait, let me turn this around here. Right here. Um, join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off in free worldwide shipping with the code MMA Tennis, all caps MMA Tennis at Manscaped.com. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try that new 4.0 and I'm blown away by the performance. It really does make a difference. It works great. It's about the craftsmanship and the details. And on the 4.0, they're at a next level. Anyone who's ever tried to shave below the belt with the same razor that they shave their face with knows it can get a little tricky. It gets a little hairy, no pun intended, doesn't it? Uh, it can be uh, an issue with nicking down there. Um, and this is designed not to do that. So your friends will be nice and safe, no cuts, No none of that pain. And also from a hygienic perspective. It's always made me a little bit uncomfortable. So it's great to separate the two and you got to do that with Manscaped. It's engineered to be the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and an incredible comfortable grooming experience. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. So now you can feel confident shaving your boys. This upgraded trimmer includes a multifunction on and off switch that can engage a travel lock. It also gives you the ability to turn on a 400k LED spotlight on and off when you need a more precise shave when you want to see better. The lawnmower 4.0 even allows you to customize your trim through additional guard length sizes one through four. See, I got the guard on right now, actually. And did I mention wireless charging? The new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help battery length last longer. So men. If you've been shaving with the same nut trimmer on your face, you've been doing it all wrong. No person wants to end up with pubes in their mouth. Nobody likes that. So it's time to get your own ball hair and body trimmer with Manscaped to make me time the best time and enhance your confidence with some nice smooth boys. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code MMATennis at Manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. So one, one more time, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MMATennis at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off free shipping at Manscaped.com using the code Tennis. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. We move on to the second semifinal, or excuse, I keep doing that. We move on to the second quarterfinal tomorrow, and it's one that I'm really looking forward to. It's funny. uh, Medvedev Tsitsipas, after they played in Australia this year, I actually tweeted on my my Twitter handle, at Gil underscore Gross, that I was watching that matchup on the slick, speedy, hard courts in Australia, thinking to myself... This would figure to be so much more competitive on clay, and I'd be so interested to see what happens on clay. So I'm happy we're getting this matchup that Daniil Medvedev has uh, proven everyone wrong who said that he couldn't win on clay and that it was such a disaster for him that there's no way that he was going to be able to beat your Alexander Bublik's of the world, your Tommy Paul's of the world, um, and and so on. So uh, the head-to-head. Makes this very interesting. Medvedev does come in uh, the um, odds makers underdog, despite a six to one head to head advantage. Titi only win was at the 2019 tour finals. Um, and in the last meeting, Medvedev picked up a straight set win, again, in the Australian Open. It was not very competitive, it was very straightforward. Uh, Medvedev was kind of in Titi heads early on. I think after their kerfuffle at Indian Wells, Tsitsipas just wanted to beat him a little bit too badly and just wasn't putting together his best performances against Medvedev. With that being said, I do think that there are a lot of tactical advantages that Medvedev has had, um, and most of that has been predicated around dominating the serve-return dynamic. Daniil Medvedev's pace... Off of his serve has been very difficult on Stefano Tsitsipas' return, which has always been the worst part of his game, just trying to uh, get returns in play with interest off of the largest serve in the men's game. And Medvedev has one of those serves. Tsitsipas has struggled with it. On the quicker surfaces, Medvedev's been able to do damage behind his serve. So the plus one factor has been skewed just far um, towards Med- towards Medvedev's favor, Tsitsipas's serve plus one um, on his serve has really been neutralized by the depth that Medvedev gets on his return. He stands far back. He's six foot six, and he just has a tremendous way at kind of neutralizing players who want to look for their uh, first forehand off of their serve. Medvedev does a really good job hitting good enough returns to to kind of fend off those big forehands. Medvedev has also forced Tsitsipas to trade and build through his backhand. Daniil is so precise on his cross-court backhand. He does such a good job uh, pinning right-handed opponents in that corner. So when Tsitsipas um, tries to run around his backhand and hit inside out, he also gets countered down the line. It's a really difficult position. Is Tsitsipas going to sit in his corner and hit backhand after backhand, or is he going to take that risk and run around and leave the open court? So the question is, what changes on clay? And if you ask me, a lot. I think it figures to eliminate a lot of those advantages. One, Pass will have an easier time on return. This is going to be the night match. And we saw how that helped Pass against John Isner. Uh, especially when a little bit of rain fell and the temperatures cooled even more. After the 9 p.m. start, Pass just got way more returns back in play. Uh, Medvedev also won't be as strong doing damage behind the serve because his flat ball just is not as effective and it's a lot easier to neutralize. Tsitsipas, I believe, can run around his backhand with a lot more freedom because he's so good recovering to his forehand corner on clay, and Medvedev's counters are just not going to do as much damage. And Tsitsipas can also change direction on his backhand a lot easier. When the ball's coming fast and hard on the quicker surfaces, uh, it's a a more difficult shot for Tsitsipas to to time. But on clay, when Stefanos can play a little bit further back and the ball is a little bit slowed down... Uh, just like Nadal has an easier time changing direction on his forehand down the line, Tsitsipas is going to have an easier time changing direction on his backhand down the line. So there are a lot of kind of old reliable advantages that Medvedev has had in this matchup that I believe the clay is going to be a very interesting wrinkled on. Um, and yes, um, Medvedev does own a victory over Tsitsipas on clay 2019 Monte Carlo. I don't recall that match, so I can't really speak to it. Uh, Medvedev has a good chance of winning if he handles the moment better than Tsitsipas. All of the pressure is on the Greek, considering the career head-to-head uh, combined with the far contrasting and different RG expectations that you know has seen Medvedev really become an underdog in this tournament despite being the number two seed, and Tsitsipas being most people's favorite to make the final. Uh, So that's a a good thing for Medvedev, and we've seen in these next-gen battles how that can affect things, how mental some of these matchups can get. I also think that if Medvedev continues to hit strong enough returns to eliminate Tsitsipas's advantage earlier in rallies while potentially continuing his serve dominance, that can be all the advantage Medvedev needs to win this despite the fact that Tsitsipas will have advantages in neutral baseline rallies on clay. Um, you know, Medvedev has kind of continued to Enjoy the advantages that he normally gets on faster courts by winning quick points on serve and making it very difficult on his opponents to do the same against him. I think um, if this match is going to go Stefano Tsitsipas's way, it's going to be a lot about his defense and his movement. And I think Tsitsipas might be able to frustrate Medvedev anytime he looks to do damage. Tsitsipas's forehand and transition game is just a, a bigger weapon than Medvedev's serve potentially. I think on the clay, the forehand becomes more important. So who's going to have more success early in rallies? Is it going to be about the serve and the return? Uh, or is it going to be about that first forehand? On quicker surfaces, the serve and the return tend to be a little bit more important. Uh, Think about the Djokovic-Nadal rivalry, where Djokovic, with superior serving and returning on quicker courts, generally wins the short points. But as soon as it gets to clay, and it really becomes about that first forehand, then Nadal garners the advantage. I think we might see the same dynamic in tsitsipas Medvedev. I think Tsitsipas wins if he brings Medvedev into the trenches. Uh, I still think best of five is a unique challenge for Daniil Medvedev. When he wins his matches in majors, oftentimes he's steamrolling, straight sets, domination. But it seems to me that normally when, when the going gets tough and when the matches get close, Medvedev often... Uh, can can let the mental side get away from him. He can lose focus. He can um, kind of lose competitiveness and go away very quickly. So I do think that Ct Pass uh, can bring Medvedev into the trenches, uh, get the better of the plus one play. Medvedev presses for offense, feeling how difficult Ct Pass will make it for him to defend frequently. And let me be a little bit more clear on that. If Medvedev feels like well, I just Titi Pass his offense, his sustained aggression is so good that I'm gonna be gassed out in two sets if I if I don't take some initiative here and and um, kind of force the issue offensively, if Medvedev feels that in his legs, the unforced errors are going to come. He's not going to like how difficult it is because Tsitsipas's court coverage is elite. And I just don't think Medvedev is going to be able to hit through the court. I think we're going to see unforced errors out of him. And my pick is Tsitsipas in four sets. Moving along to two matchups that I think are a lot less complicated, a little bit more straightforward. So you'll notice my analysis is going to be a little bit shorter for these next two. Nadal Schwartzman, both of these matches will be played on, on Wednesday. Nadal Schwartzman, that's a 10 to 1 head to head. In favor of Nadal, Schwartzman beat a compromised version of Nadal in Rome last year, but then Nadal got his revenge two weeks later in Paris and did so in convincing fashion. Schwartzman has lacked the weapons to hurt Nadal in this matchup, while Nadal's forehand has simply bullied Diego around the court. Schwartzman does have a great cross court backhand. One of the key qualities if you want to compete against Nadal, go heavy, hard, cross-court with the backhand to try to really stretch out Nadal and rush him on the forehand side where you can get some short, attackable balls and go from there. Uh, but I find that Schwartzman often struggles to build off of his cross-court backhand, struggles to hit his around forehand with enough consistency and heaviness to to ultimately win the point despite his advantage. And the same goes for his down-the-line backhand, which just isn't quite as sharp and effective as his cross-court backhand. So I think in order for Schwartzman to win, he needs to drag Nadal into a ton of long baseline rallies. He did this early in last year's meeting at Roland Garros, and he just couldn't sustain it. Uh, But I think in in neutral rallies, Schwartzman's craftsmanship, his shot tolerance, his consistency, his angles, it's great. And Schwartzman is great. So at his best, he can actually go toe-to-toe with Nadal in the long rallies. He even did that last year. Even though he lost badly, he didn't lose badly in the long rallies, just the short ones. Um, I think, you know, Schwartzman needs to pin Nadal in his backhand corner and, and just lengthen the rallies that way. Go down the line with his backhand. Don't let Nadal's forehand take over. And then he just needs to survive and hope Nadal gets tired. Nadal has been a little bit more prone to fatigue recently in his career. Um, he did get tired against Tsitsipas in his last defeat in best-of-five format. That was... Uh, in Australia, so I think that that needs to be Schwartzman's hope. He needs to make this physical, just like he made it against physical against Dominic Team last year in in his last quarterfinal here, and hope that Nadal wears down. Uh, the way Nadal wins, look in most of Schwartzman's losses to Nadal, it really feels like there's nothing the Argentine can do about it. Nadal uses his early forehand aggression so effectively. He goes down the line often. He hits punishing angles sideline breaking angles with his forehand and uh, He wins the overwhelming majority of points zero through four shots because what he can do with his serve Forehand combination is is are things that Schwartzman simply can't do. So that's where his main advantage is. I also thought that Nadal did a great job last year of attacking Diego Schwartzman's second serve. I think Nadal needs to make a point to win over 50 percent of Schwartzman's second serve points, and he does that by making sure to move up in the court a little bit, take advantage of of the fact that Schwartzman's second serve is underpowered, move up your court position, and really take a rip if you're Rafael Nadal because you have a chance to break serve very frequently if you win over 50% of Diego Schwartzman's second serve points. I think if Nadal challenges himself to gain that advantage off of his second serve immediately, uh, he has a great chance to do that. My prediction right now is that Nadal's offense is simply too confident to allow Diego to rope him into the long rallies. And I have Rafael Nadal winning in three. Djokovic-Berrettini is our final quarterfinal match to preview. The head-to-head is 1-0 in favor of Novak Djokovic, but it's not really an applicable head-to-head because that match was at the World Tour Finals, completely different conditions. It was a very straightforward, I think Berrettini won a total of three games in that match. Djokovic has really frustrated players who have Berrettini's mold. Players who rely on serve and forehand effectiveness and lack movement and backhand. The best example of this is definitely Milos Raonic, who's a pretty good comparison with Matteo Berrettini. Um, And I even think when you compare what they are likely to do in their careers, I think that although Berrettini's way better on clay than Raonic, I think that those two are a good comparison in more ways than one. Hopefully, Berrettini stays healthier than Raonic as well. Uh, But Djokovic has won all 12 meetings with Milos Raonic. He loves this play style. I think Andy Murray is very similar. Players who really fancy the defensive and neutralizing capabilities of their return of serves, as Djokovic does. Uh, Players who hit really good precision into the righty backhand corner. And... uh, you know, most of the best players in the world have this, but but Djokovic is so good uh, with his cross-court backhand and even the way he surgically redirects his forehand at will. And someone like Berrettini, he's either going to get one of two things um, against Novak Djokovic. He's either going to get stretched out with a running forehand or he's going to get a backhand. Um, assuming that Djokovic is in the position he wants to be, so that'll be Djokovic's tactic. I don't think that Novak is going to casually go to the Berrettini forehand. He's either going to go to the forehand with interest or go to the Berrettini backhand. Um, so I guess here are Berrettini's paths to victory. And notice I'm I'm I go I do the underdog first, and then I do the favorite. If there's any questions about how I decide what what order this is, um, Berrettini. Um, obviously has a tremendous serve. And I think the concern for Novak Djokovic is that there have been times now on clay that I've noticed that he hasn't really handled the heavy kick to his backhand very well. And Novak has a great backhand return, but the difference between clay and other surfaces is it's going to be way bouncier, and it's going to get above the shoulders. So now with uh, the Lorenzo-Massetti match included, which is very fresh in my memory, and thinking back to a lot of the Dominic team matches where team has struggled with team's kick serve to Djokovic's backhand, well, guess what? Berrettini is absolutely filthy on that serve. Not only does he have that, but he has variety, and he's going to mix it up. And Novak isn't going to be able to really sit on that kick serve to the backhand, because Berrettini will will, um, hit a lot of different serves. So I think for that reason, but ultimately when it comes to protecting second serves, it's going to be about the kick serve. For that reason, I think Berrettini does have a good chance to bother the Djokovic return. um, On this surface, more than other surfaces because of the kick serve effectiveness. Berrettini's forehand is big enough to penetrate Djokovic's defense. It's as good a weapon as there is. Uh, I'm sure Berrettini will hope that this match is played in the daytime. Uh, I think that'll give him a better chance to uh, to do that. Maybe not. You know, I can I can actually think of reasons why that might not be the case. I won't get into them, but um, I, I daytime will probably give Berrettini the best. Um, the best chance to finish points quickly. And then the key is that Berrettini avoids being hurt on his backhand side by using the slice backhand cross court. And if he can use the slice backhand cross court to great effect, which I'm not sure he has the capability to do. But if he can do that, he can um he takes away Djokovic's potency on the backhand and perhaps he can stay patient and wait for his chance to find the attackable forehand and then rip the only way i see Berrettini really protecting his backhand is if he uses the slice cross court very very well the way djokovic wins is he finds Berrettini's backhand off the return and if he does that it's going to be big trouble for matteo he's just not going to win a lot of points that way and that's going to be novak's goal his goal is going to be to go you know maybe just deep up the middle but if not into the backhand corner off the return and he'll probably win an overwhelming uh, majority of the rallies if he's able to do that. Um, I don't really expect to have Djokovic have... I don't expect Djokovic to have much of a problem on his own service games, especially off of his first serve. Djokovic's early aggression has been so good uh, in this tournament. And because Berrettini just doesn't have the defense or the movement to neutralize Djokovic's early aggression, I expect a lot of plus one success from Novak. Berrettini is not going to do like what Musetti was able to do for a while, which is hang back, uh, deep court position, high loopy defense, and really try to work back into the point um, with uh, you know explosive movement, court coverage, and and again high, heavy topspin defense, Berrettini can't really do that. Um, another thing Novak might be able to do is find a lot of counterattacks when Berrettini leaves open court to run around his own backhand. Look out for that uh, because that's something that Djokovic can do really well against uh, players like Berrettini and Tsitsipas who really rely on creating offense from their inside-out forehand. Another key for Djokovic is that he's going to feel less tension than he did in the Lorenzo-Massetti match. I don't know why... He seemed a little bit stressed and just couldn't let his forehand go in that match, but obviously that'll be a key for Djokovic's victories, that he doesn't really feel as much pressure. Um, I don't know what was the what it was about the circumstances with Massetti, a guy who he practices with a lot, uh, a teenager, someone who maybe he just knew was very, very dangerous. I'm not quite sure, but Berrettini is someone who who I think Djokovic will have a lot of confidence against in this quarterfinal. My prediction is that Djokovic might have to win some tie breaks. Uh, Again, I do think he could struggle on the return a little bit. I don't think he's going to have much of a problem holding serve. Uh, But the key is going to be in the big moments— is Novak going to have more confidence in his all-court game under pressure than Berrettini will? I think the answer is yes, and I think Novak Djokovic will win in four sets. All right, without further ado... Here is a former top 100 pro, someone who um, I always enjoy having on. He is the founder of Tennis Evolution, an online um, training uh, or coaching website and instructional website, which is tremendous and, in my opinion, the best on the internet. Here is Jeff Salzenstein. We're joined once again by Jeff Salzenstein. You asked for him. You got him. They they miss you very much, Jeff. They asked asked for me? Yes. Yes, they asked for you they, they always do. Okay. Yep. All right. Thank you. Um, tennisevolution.com, um, (laughs) visit it. It'll be in the description. Let's start with, with Jeff. Um, I was, uh, I came to the defense of, of Roger and, and I think people are pretty split on this and some people came at me pretty hard. So, uh, where are you at? You know, is, is this, uh, is this a move that disrespects the tournament and disrespects his competitors? Or does Federer have the right to look after Federer?
0: I think it's a tough call. I mean, I, I my initial reaction was uh, I read something John McEnroe said that uh, it's French Open. You know, you, you should play. And that was my initial reaction. And then I dug in a little bit. I read, a, I read Andy Murray's quote. I read Chris Everett's quote. I see both sides. It's a tough call. Uh, as a purist, uh, I think that a player, if they're going to sign up for a grand slam, that means they're fit to play and they, they give it a shot. Um, that, you know, he won three matches. Um, he's playing solid, obviously. So I think as a purist, I, I side with, with, he should, he should gut it out. Now the flip side and we'll see if i end up taking a stance here. The flip side mm-hmm. is that he obviously he's 40 years old and he hasn't been playing and he's coming off knee cert sur- two knee surgeries and he, and the body at that age it's dangerous. I mean i i was a guy at 33 years old i retired and that was considered old and he's 40 and he's coming off knee surgeries and asking someone to play three out of five sets uh, over two weeks, multiple matches—it's—it's it's a risk. I personally, if I'm going to go out on a limb here, I'm—I'm I'm probably leaning more. He should have played because, again, you start a tournament. It seems like he's healthy. He doesn't have an injury t- to my knowledge. That you—you you owe it. You owe it to the sport, and you and you signed up, and mm-hmm. that's the purest in me. So I—I I lean more towards that direction but boy if anyone should get a pass for this uh it's roger Feder, uh it, and um yeah it would have been nice for him to play the next match and play a set or two and if he's fe- who knows like he could start feeling fresh by set three he didn't give himself a chance mm-hmm. and where i'm going to throw a monkey rich into this is that djokovic wasn't far away right if he wins right. one more match in he's the gonna draw, yeah
1: he was one away one one win over Matteo Berrettini that would have set up Federer against Joker. so he's
0: probably looking at it going Berrettini is a physical beast and if even if I get by that now I got to deal with the Joker and I don't like playing him on any surface I got to keep my side it's kind of like you know when he sometimes has lost in the past when he's maybe about to play Nadal and people have said there's no way he's like throwing the match. Well, I'm not saying he's throwing the match. I just think there's a subconscious thing there. Like, do I really want to deal with Nadal or Djokovic knowing that I'm not going to, probably not going to win. And then I take that with me psychologically to the next tournament. I don't know. I, I tend to think that if he was playing a guy ranked 50 in the world next round, and then knew that the next guy he would play is 50 in the world or 30 in the world, I'm not sure he pulls out. And I know that sounds dicey but i think the prospects of Berrettini djokovic is a lot coming from coming from where he's at and he would never admit that and his team well, wouldn't admit that
1: right for, for for sure not well if he beat Berrettini, then it would have been a really difficult look for him to withdraw i mean that's, that then i don't think he could have done i think it. that's what so, all discussed
0: i, I think they in the back room going okay if we get by Berrettini and we're slated to play djokovic we can't retire can't pull out. It it just, it just, it would have been whatever,
1: you know, whatever heat fetter has gotten. It would have been twice as bad if, if he pulled that move, but you know, you've, you've had injuries, you know what it's like to play best of five when you're, when you're setting up a rehab, I thought Andy Murray made a fascinating point in team sports. If you're a basketball player coming off of, off of an injury, the coach says, okay, you can play 10 minutes this week. And then, okay, we're going to up it to 20. Okay. Now you can play your full allotted minutes, but in tennis, you're trapped out there on the court and you don't really get to, you don't get to work your way up like that. You just don't have that, that privilege. So, you know, how do you manage rehabbing in tennis? Because you want to kind of push further and further and further, and you want to do it slowly. It's just so difficult in this sport to
0: do it. So before I handle that, I want to be really clear. So for people that are going to maybe leave comments that are Federer fans, number one, I'm a big Federer fan. And number two, I'm not suggesting that the primary reason he pulled out is because of Berrettini Djokovic. I think the primary reason is exactly what he said. I just think that there's a niggle in there like, huh, do I really want to go six hours in the next two matches, seven hours against those guys I'm risking? To answer your question, I read the quote as well. And my initial reaction was, that's a really good point. And then as you're speaking, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. If you, and I know practice matches do not mimic real matches. However, growing up, the way we got ready for tournaments is we played practice matches. And I know even before my era in the 70s, a lot of the old school coaches would say these drill groups and these clinics that players do, we don't do those. We, we go out with a can of balls and we play uh, two out of three. And if we're getting ready, we need to play three out of five. We don't go run on the track. We go play three out of five. So, you know, I look at this situation. I'm like, if they're mapping out his recovery and his rehab, I suggest that if he was training, let's say back in February, And he was healthy then, which I don't know when he was officially healthy, that he would have been, they would be reverse engineering starting in June, June one saying, okay, we got to be ready to play three out of five by the end of May. So we are going to schedule February, March, April, and May, and we will start with one practice set. And then two days later, we'll play a set and a half, and then we'll take two days off and then we'll go to two sets. And eventually, you're playing three out of five set matches, or you're playing two out of th- two sets in the morning and two sets in the afternoon. And you get to that place in practice where you're like, "I'm good to go." So, yeah. I think all of that kind of uh, building, like what he was discussing with basketball, uh, could have could be done on the practice court.
1: Well, after Feder's three and a half hour hour match with Kepfer, he said, "I have not played for that long. I obviously." He said in, in in his words, I obviously am not going to practice for that long. So so that certainly wasn't how Feder approached it. And then the other thing is, you know, he 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 was very honest coming into the tournament that his goal is not to be was never to be a hundred percent fit by Roland Garros. His goal was to be a hundred percent fit by Wimbledon. So that's the timing of it.
0: And so if he hadn't played that long, that suggests to me he should not have signed up for the French Open. And then what he does is he goes and plays? Uh, this could be a little wacky, but he goes and he plays a challenger on grass. Uh, mm-hmm. Or, or again, he plays. There's, I believe, there's two weeks. There's Hala, uh, and then there might be another week. If he's really so concerned, yeah, go ahead.
1: He's he's gonna play Hala next week. This week is Nottingham in in Great Britain. If he went that route, he would have probably played Nottingham this week.
0: Right. So he could have said, "I'm not ready to play three out of five and grueling clay." I'll just play as much grass court tennis as I can for build up for Wimbledon. And he's already shown, listen, what the guy was out for a year and a half and he's beating everyone already. He clearly has a magic ability to play well in matches after being out. Not many people can do this. So I think the schedule is, is just play on grass. I don't, I don't think he needed to play in the French open based on him, not training that long. And based on the fact that he maybe knew ahead of time, listen, if I somehow get to the second week, I'm pulling out.
1: I want to get your thoughts on, on Dominic team who uh, has really, really struggled even more so in 2021 than he did uh, just after uh, winning the U S open, because, you know, he was still winning matches, you know, in, in Europe and he made the quarterfinal of Roland Garros, not good for him, but, but now it's, it's reached a new level where he's losing to Pablo Andujar in the first round of the French. He's just not right. Uh, What do you make of the downturn in Dominic teams results and? and, and w- the things that he's had to say about the dip in motivation that he's experienced.
0: One of the things that's people that have never played pro tennis, and, and you obviously haven't, but you have you have a very insightful mind and you think about the game almost from a perspective of a, of a high level player, not suggesting you're not a high level player, but a pro, yeah. uh, it is so darn hard to play pro tennis. I, I tell you, I played 11 years off and on. I got to 100 in the world. I was, you know, I didn't play that many three out of fives. These guys are playing, you know, 30 weeks a year. He plays a stronger schedule, you know, more intense schedule than most. He's a grinder. Um, it, like a Nadal, it takes a lot of mental, emotional, and physical effort. It is so tough to stay at the top of the game. And so let's just take a step back and again look at what Djokovic does week in and week out. Nadal, Better for the last 15 years, 20 years, the fact that they've stayed at the top of the game and maintained that emotional, mental, physical resilience is, is something that we have not seen in this lifetime. We may not see again. And so when, when team is struggling, what it speaks to number one is how tough it is to stay up there because he's a darn good player. What I think it also speaks to is uh, similar to what Djokovic went through when he won his four slams and then had the, the letdown for a couple of years, Mats V in one year, won three grand slams. He was never the same again. Bjorn Borg was at the top of the game and he lost to John McEnroe and he could never get back. He never got back. He walked away from the game at 26. You train for 20 years for something to win a grand slam and you finally do it and you do it in front of zero people and you don't really do it in front of, and you don't beat the best. Uh, And then this whole landscape of COVID, it's a very taxing situation. So I admire his honesty. Uh, I admire his, his candidness. He's a really honest, hardworking gent. And uh, I hope he gets back. Uh, I think he can, I think it's going to be tough. His game style, how hard he pounds Um, people figure him out. The pressure of being at the top, uh, and also maybe his training has changed. I mean, I remember when he was, you know, they show videos of him in Miami with his trainer doing these plyometrics, crazy plyometrics off of walls and stools. And that pounding on top of all the pounding on the court is a lot. And so he's not built, he's not built like a Federer. So I think it's going to be a tough road for him, but that's, that's my insight. Cut a couple takes on that about how, how difficult it is to, to maintain.
1: Yeah, there is a there is a lot of effort in his game and a lot of effort in his training for sure. And I, I think the the big three angle is a is a salient one that you know <clears throat> maybe uh, what what's normal and what's abnormal to us can kind of get skewed if we get if we're getting used to the the dominance at the top that Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer has uh, have shown us. Um, I want to do a, a quick technical thing. Um, this is going to be released after a quarterfinal match. It's going to be Alejandro Davidovich Fakina against Alexander Zverev. And I just want people to, to be aware of this. And I want to bring it up while you're on because you're so good with this stuff. Hmm. Um, Davidovich Fakina does not make an L in his trophy position. His arm is a little bit close to straight. And I, you know, it reminds me of Novak's serve before he fixed it. And I want people to look out for this because this is such a promising young player who can do really great things. And I love him as a talent, but Mm -hmm. the serve um, I'm hoping he fixes that technique. I want you to explain why um, it's important to have a good elbow bend and that, that angle in the trophy position.
0: Sure. So, you know, one of the big tips that I have that I teach people is called elbowing the enemy and it talks just about what, you, what, you're, what you're referring to is that a lot of people when they, they, they make their motion, uh, when they start their motion and they get into the trophy position, it doesn't look like what I'm showing here where essentially if I were Tom Brady or if I were a 90 mile an hour fastball pitcher, at some point in the, in the swing, the, the arm gets into this L position right here. This is the upper arm and the lower arm. And and you find this slot, you find this position, and then you can obviously accelerate. In our case, the racket drops back behind the body, and you know there's a lot of different service motions out there, and obviously different people make it work for them uh, in terms of efficiency, in terms of uh, being able to serve efficiently for many years and have it be a weapon. Novak Djokovic was smart to fix that, that position, to have that, that straight arm, and now, now it's, it's nice and tight in here and compact. Federer does it, you know, Sampras, a lot of the best get there. And so, yes, you'll always have the idiosyncrasies. You'll always be able to find people that are successful that, that don't find this position, find this slot, as they're in that trophy position before they drop the racket. Uh, But I I think it's an anomaly. I think it can create inefficiencies. And again, there's something to be said about a player that says, I'm not going to try to have the perfect technique. I'm going to work with what I have and make it work. I do think there are limitations at a certain level. And I don't know if double faults creep in or shoulder problems creep in. I mean, um, Dimitrov has a low elbow on his serve. He's had some arm problems. But at some point, there might be – uh, limited benefit, limited returns. You know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to bump up against a ceiling at some point. Yeah. It's not a weapon for him right now. It it starts to point. Um, but
1: I I think, you know, he's (laughs) six foot one, he's a good athlete. He, he can have a good serve. Um, so I I wanted to, uh, to speak on that, look out for that in, um, in ADF's career and look
0: and look out for Zarev's toss. You know, I, let's see, you know, I, I haven't really studied him intensely recently to know if any adjustments have been made, but one of the things I've been critical of with his serve is that the toss is very high and when he's loose, I'm sure he can time it, but when he's tight, we all know that it either goes, you know, 120 anywhere, or it goes 68 miles an hour in the middle of the box. And so, you know, you're looking at two athletes playing each other that, that, that struggle with their serve technique. When I say struggle, it's all relative. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you compare it to the best of all time, it's not quite at that level.
1: Yeah. All right. So now we're looking at the uh, Roland Garros draw. It looks like Nadal and Djokovic are on a collision course in the top half. It looks like some between, you know, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, I don't (laughs) want to count them out. Um, and uh, Alexander Zverev looks like it'll be a combination of those three players on the bottom half. Um, you know, who, who's the biggest threat to, to Nadal? Does it come in the semi against Djokovic? Do you think that uh, one of those youngsters can challenge him in the final?
0: You're a betting man. You, you have to think that Djokovic has the best shot at taking the King of clay, Rafael Nadal out. Uh, that's the obvious bet. I'm not a betting man. So, I'm not going to be putting any money on any of this and never do um, just me. Uh, but I think Djokovic definitely poses the greatest threat. Goran Ibnicevic made an interesting comment before the uh, French open saying that if they met in the semis, advantage Djokovic. If they meet in the finals, advantage Nadal, which, you know, I find interesting. Maybe it's because of the big stage. I'm not sure I agree with it because Nadal's uh, Nadal's going to kick your butt on clay whether it's the first round, the semis, or the finals. Um, I, I, I know where Goron's going with it, but I, I think Djokovic has the best shot. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't be surprised if Berrettini upsets Djokovic. If, if, if it happens, I'm going to say, well, the guy's strong. He's confident. Uh, Djokovic just had a tough five-setter. I know the last couple sets were easy, but uh, Berrettini, you know, he'll have a game plan for Djokovic. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he might be working with Craig O'Shaughnessy who used to work with Djokovic. So yeah, he Craig, does. Craig Craig works for the Italian team, uh, Italian Federation. I believe he's helping Musetti. It's not a surprise that Musetti making a jump. And it's not a surprise that Berrettini is, is using the analytics to play his best tennis. Now, Diego Schwartzman, I believe is, you know, he's been known to give Nadal a hard time as well. Be very surprised if he upsets him. Uh, but again, you're you're looking at very experienced guys playing in the quarterfinals. These are not new guys to the quarterfinals. So uh I really like the top four matchup there. Obviously gonna go with Djokovic and Nadal. I'm never I I tell people I think one year I bet against Nadal, and when I didn't bet, but I basically said his run is over. Yeah. I think when Djokovic was hot one year, which he's been hot many years, and of course I was wrong. And this time, and maybe even last year, I said, I'm never going to count Nadal out at the French Open until he loses. I'm just not. Because it's just a different beast for him. Yeah. Bottom ha- a, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, fair fair
0: strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom half of the draw. Uh, you know, you, you have to think that Zarev and, and Sisa Pass has been playing the best clay court tennis uh, from what I can see outside of Nadal. So you have to think that Sissipas and Zarev are the favorites there. And uh, really, Zarev is probably the best player on clay on the bottom half if he's firing on all cylinders. And that's a big if. So I think it's advantage Pass based on his previous uh, based on his previous results the last couple of months, knocking off yeah. Nadal. Uh, if you're a betting person, you go with him. Um uh, But, you know, if Zarev is loose, I think he can get to the final. It's hard for me to pick Medvedev when he hasn't had great clay court results.
1: Right. No, I, I I think Medvedev's flat game his lack of offense and power on the clay. I think it finally will catch up to him against Tsitsipas, but there is a, a mental thing with that matchup where Medvedev has a 6-1 edge uh, against Stefanos and all the pressure is on Tsitsipas because he knows that he's supposed to win this match. I think the, the thing with the semifinal and the final, I don't think it matters for Djokovic, Nadal. No, no moment is too big or too small for any of them. I do think it helps Nadal or Djokovic if he he happened to beat Nadal. I think it helps both of them to play one of the youngsters in the final. Uh, Zverev's been to to one major final, and Medvedev has been to two. Tsitsipas has been to zero. Uh, So I think it does help to play the inexperienced player in the final as opposed to playing them potentially in the semifinal. Um, So everyone, Djokovic and Nadal fans were really upset. Some of them were very upset. Oh, it's, they're, we're on the same half. That's terrible. What a terrible draw. No, that's good. You want to play the young guy in the final. Does that check out?
0: Yeah, I think it, it does. And listen, the the next gen or whatever we're calling these guys, the the, the young bucks, they're still not taking out the, the two kings of the game. And yeah. not at the majors,
1: best of three.
0: Yeah best of, now. yeah, best of three, but not in three out of five. I mean, getting through those two guys is just – uh, it's a nightmare. And I, again, I think people, some people realize it, but it's just insane what these guys are doing at their age, uh, completely reinventing the sport, changing paradigms, showing what's possible. Uh, people were counting Nadal out, gosh, eight years ago, you know, they Mm -hmm. said his, his game, his legs, his body, it's going to break down. Huh? arguably i mean if he keeps going i mean again you can make the case for both of them to be the goat um to be dominant on one surface like this and it's not like again he's nadal is dominant on clay and he's average on other surfaces he's still at the top of the game on other surfaces he's just so dominant on on red clay no one will i don't think i don't think we'll ever see anything like it again
1: yeah 100 percent i mean it's going to be uh God, I mean, he's almost tied. If he wins if he wins this year, he's tied Pete Sampras just at one major. <laughs> it's
0: incredible. It's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, can't really compare it, but I mean, I played in all four slams. I never won a match in a slam. So I lost first round in four slams. No, actually, I take that back. I won a round at the U.S. Open. Uh, but, you know, just to be on that stage, I mean, I know the level I got to. I know that was a pretty high level and it's still multiple levels away from these guys, what they're doing and just be grateful. You know, even, even I look at other sports, you know, LeBron James at 35, 36, he won, he won the NBA finals last year and he's still dominating. But even this year, when you watch him play, he doesn't look as explosive to me as he was. I know he was injured this year, but these athletes that are 35 years old, most of the time they're not as explosive as they were when they were 25 and they're playing a team sport. You know, Tom Brady, amazing what he's doing in his 40s. But you mean to tell me with him with his knee brace and someone said the other day that he actually had knee problems the whole year? Well, if Nadal has knee problems, he's not playing. So the fact that these guys are playing a solo sport and playing for four hours and they're winning tournaments and winning slams still, I, I just can't compare it to any other sport we will
1: uh we'll close it on that the the greatness of uh of the big 3. Then you know we'll we'll see how this plays out at the end of the tournament. Uh but always a pleasure Jeff to to chat with you. Uh great stuff as always and and go to tennisevolution.com for the best coaching on the internet.
0: Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Gil. What you do is amazing. And uh, yeah, have me back whenever you want.
1: All right. We thank Jeff Salzenstein for his time as always. And uh, remember that Monday Match Analysis is available on all podcast platforms. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Gil underscore gross. That'll do it. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. And I'll see you next time.